Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Right now, we're going to attempt an intelligent conversation. I turned to Mrs. Keene at the 10 o'clock hour last night, and I said, you know, I figure Wheeler will cancel as Ohio State went down in flames. Tom Wheeler, your comment on the spirit of college football in the time of this national crisis. My comment is go Buckeyes. Think about what brought you there, uh, not just the outcome, but it was a tragedy last night. He is a former FCC chairman, and we're thrilled that Thomas Wheeler could join us this morning. Tom, I don't like the phrase net neutrality. It's Greek to me. Um, but tell us what the, the net looks like in two or three years. We are evolving each and every day. With Fiorina and Wheeler on the same page, what does our FCC world look like in five years? Well, I think that what is important is we've got to think about what the new world looks like. That, um, that we have been trying to oversee um, the revolution of the digital economy and digital technology using statutes and regulatory structures that were created for the industrial era. And we need a new approach that recognizes that the world has changed, that things move much more quickly than they did before, and so we can't have the old sclerotic approach to oversight. And, and secondly, that we're dealing with a whole new class of assets, soft assets instead of hard assets, and they behave differently in the marketplace. All right, so Tom, let's bring this to what happened over the past week or so. We saw Twitter ban President Trump from its platform, Facebook suspending him from theirs, is raising a question about big tech's role in really determining the discourse in the nation and frankly in the world. What is the government's role in dictating the guidelines for some of these big tech companies? Well, I think Carly Fiorina hit the nail on the head, and this is the, the basis for things that I've been writing, saying, saying that, look, um, what's been going on is the technology companies have assumed quasi-governmental role. They are making the rules because our representatives in government are not. And we need to step up and figure out, um, as the people... What are the rules that um, that uh, that should should exist? How do we have competition instead of these monopolies? How do we have expectations for responsible behavior rather than um, uh, well, we'll do uh, whatever we want because it's profitable. Yeah, but, but, but Tom, I mean, you talk about these concepts and there's very little agreement on exactly how to frame uh, these issues. We can't even get a stimulus effort passed when we have a jobless rate that's incredibly high. I mean, what is your confidence level that there actually is some consensus on these big philosophical concepts in Washington, D.C.? Lisa, I think this goes back to our discussion of the game last night. <laughs> you know, I think you need to have the willingness to get on the field and to try and work it out um, rather than just running away from it, which is frankly what we've done for too long. You know, one of the things that's happened is that, is that policymakers have been sold for the last couple of decades 
policymakers have been sold this snake oil that um, that somehow digital is different and that it's pretty close to magic. And if you um, do anything to provide public interest oversight, you'll break that magic. That's not the case. And we need to have policymakers who understand, and I think they are coming up to speed, who understand the realities of the digital economy and are willing to step up. I mean, let's go back in history for just a second. The, the regulatory structures that we have in place right now were created to provide balance in the industrial economy to the inherent incentive to excess that was created at that point in time. We need to have some kind of uh, a offsetting, countervailing structure created in mm-hmm. the digital economy. But we can't rely on the structures that were created for 100 years ago because it's a new world. Tom Wheeler, I want to talk about your wonderful work on the Civil War, your book, Take Command on Leadership. And in it, you talk about taking the next hill. We've got to take the next technology hill. Do you assume whatever that technology hill looks like, and let's say it's the Ohio regiments at Gettysburg, do you just assume that's a breakup of these technology companies? No, Tom. Um, I, I think that what you have to do uh, you know, another chapter in the book talks about you got to look at new techniques and new and have new thoughts yep. Be- because because, uh, you know, I don't want to break up Facebook and have half a dozen mini me Facebooks all with the incentive to use their monopoly power over the digital assets, which they hold and won't share with anybody else. I would rather see let's have instead of break up. Let's break open access to those assets. Let me give you one specific example. In 1956, AT&T was forced to open access to its patents, which was the greatest repository of, of, of patents in the world. And when that happened, innovation and competition took off. They had been using those patents to thwart others from creating competitive Mm -hmm. alternatives. And and what we need to do is say, okay, these companies are now sitting on massive databases. We will never be able to compete with them if they continue to hoard those databases. You need to open the databases, not for free, not for free, but you need to provide access to the assets that are essential for the digital economy to run. Well, controversial to say the least. Thomas Wheeler, thank you so much. Greatly thank appreciate you. it. Stephen Whiting is with Ed Morris at Citigroup, Citigroup Private Bank, and he joins us uh, this morning. Stephen Whiting, do you readjust your 2021 view with a tumult of the first 12 days of this year? We don't not because of political shocks like this. I think when we look back at history, we can find 20 events all the way back and including World War II that really qualify as political or geopolitical shocks. Only two of them really turned the direction of the world economy. And this is one that I would doubt is going to turn the direction of the world economy. And for all those that didn't, 
the effects in financial markets weren't felt for more than 90 days. Let's see, I want you to comment on Ed Morrison Oil to 60 as well. You've got frontline commodity work filtering into Citigroup private bank. How do you filter in the work of Edward Morris? Remarkably, because it's across asset classes, it's powerful. When we understand what's going on in the oil market, in particular, more than other commodities, but certainly in commodities like copper and iron ore, um, these might have directly relatively small shares of economic activity, but the sensitivities to credit, the movements in currencies, the read-through to broader asset allocation, it's been really powerful. So Ed's been a fantastic contributor uh, to, to our work in terms of broader asset allocation, even beyond commodities. So what you're saying is that you buy the reflation trade? Is that what you're saying? Oh, I do, because I believe in a vaccine. Uh, and uh, we see already with just three producers, probably five billion vaccine doses uh, will be distributed over the course of 2021. And that's not the end of the vaccine pipeline. Uh, and you can hear it from the Federal Reserve, if you don't want to believe me, that the course of the virus, the pandemic and the vaccines will really determine the course of the future economy. This has been uh, an external exogenous shock we were, came into this event relatively healthy with low inflation rates, no booms in any industries, and this virus knocked us down incredibly deeply. It's changed every asset price in the world, uh, and it, when it leaves, it will change every asset price in the world. Uh, and there's a lot of the economy that can still be restored uh, in later in 2021 and 2022 uh, as it departs. All right. So in the near term, how are you looking at the vaccinations in order to determine your investing thesis? We were speaking with Mark McCormick about how he's tracking which nations are doing the best job of getting vaccines into our arms. Are you doing the same to determine where in the world to invest? Well, it's no surprise, for example, that throughout Asia, the pervasiveness um, of the virus has been lower. Maybe it's the experience with SARS, for example. Um, very, very high compliance with mask wearing. Right, has had a different economic impact there. Um, I, I just think that we are very early on in terms of the vaccination. I mean, it is fairly miraculous that we have uh, effective vaccines at the levels that we are seeing, right? Mm -hmm. Epidemiologists expected 60 to 70% efficacy, you know, a little bit closer to flu vaccines. Uh, and here we are with some of these well above 90%. The rollout may be slow, but I think this is a little bit uh, like sand in a sieve Right. It'll move faster uh, as we as we go yeah. forward. Steve Whiting. Right? So quibbling about a couple of months is not something that I'm going to do with uh, asset allocation. Steve Whiting, Ben Laidler over Tower Hudson, very courageously. He's been dead on on optimism on the equity markets. Costs for three years of double digit return. He says there's a not certitude, but a likelihood of that. You and I have lived in the certitude of single digit returns. Is that where we finally are? Well, look, we're not expecting returns as robust as 2020 on headline, especially for U.S. equities, where we had a lot of defensive equities in the technology sector. They provided the solutions to the COVID economy. Their valuations were driven up by falling interest rates, right? So it was more than the durability of their earnings, but there was that in valuation. So we're not expecting to be as strong as last year's 19% return for U.S. equities. But there's a lot around the world right now where 85% of our equity overweight is outside the United States, where we've seen some pockets of the world lag badly behind. Now, when we think back to 2009, where conditions perfect, we lost jobs the entirety of 2009. That was a 35% gain 
right, for global equities in that year. Less for the United States, more for the rest of the world. Uh, people thought the uh, expansion was over, that we priced in recovery. It's now time, you know, to wait for the next crisis. We then went on to 10 years uh, in which we had an 180% gain uh, in global equities. Gains in nine out of 11 years. And what was the return in cash over that time? 6% cumulative. Yeah. Well, Steve, what's the distinction of the Citigroup view on markets in 2021, given that what you've laid out is very much what we're hearing from most people on the show? Well, I think, again, it's discriminating between which assets will really move, that there are these shorter term dislocations that are quite severe. We've been uh, overweight small cap U.S. equities uh, for a good period of time in 2020. That has mean reverted pretty significantly. Latin America, Southeast Asia, these are markets that have not come back nearly as much. The fact that there's a strong correlation uh, between what you mentioned earlier, um, Ed Morse's view on oil and financial stocks that sort of are priced as if they are, uh, their businesses reflect the worst of the credit conditions of the most impacted industries. These are areas, again, that we'd be bullish on for a tactical rebound. Now, when we get all through with these distortions, we're going to focus in on a different set of opportunities. Some of these are really long-term growth opportunities, like the fact that we've only had a minimal amount of shift uh, in the world to, uh, to greener technologies, right? Electrification, that these are thematic opportunities that are really incipient, just the way e-commerce was 10 years ago. Stephen Whiting, uh, just fascinating. Thank you so much. We're going to have to leave it there right now with a death. Stephen Whiting of Citigroup Private Bank. Thank you so much. Julie Norman with us right now. Lisa Bramlitz and Tom King, your simulcast. Professor Norman at the University of College London. And, you know, Professor, we've done different things here, including the TikTok with Kevin Cirilli and the rest of it. I want to look forward with you, Professor, to the new gridlock. Democratic president, Democratic Senate, Democratic House. Why are we even talking about gridlock? Well, Tom, I think there's always going to be a bit of gridlock in Washington. But for Biden especially, yes, he does have a majority now in the Senate after the Georgia runoffs. But that's an extremely slim majority with the Senate being 50-50 and just having the vice president as a tiebreaker and only a four-seat majority in the House, one of the slimmest in recent memory. So just because of that, it's going to be tough to get legislation through, especially in the Senate, where most meaningful legislation requires 60 votes, not just the simple majority. And even more than that, there are some uh, surmising sometimes that having a closed House and a closed Senate increases opportunities for compromise and bipartisanship. But in fact, we sometimes see the opposite, that in fact, often the minority party is even less likely to compromise in those right. situations because they don't want to give the majority a win. If we somehow get beyond our national catastrophe, how does a minority react to not owning either of the three houses? What, what do the Republicans do based on history's take? Well, what we've seen historically is that, again, whichever party is the minority, Republicans or Democrats, Republicans in this case, um, would try and stymie some of that legislation that the majority party wants to put through for Joe Biden and for Democrats right now. 
the emphasis will most likely be on further uh, stimulus bills, further corona relief. We can expect that there will be some opposition to that in the Senate, starting with uh, opposition to, say, the increase of $2,000 checks or increasing some of the aid to state and local governments. So we'll see some kind of digging in and uh, just trying to create some barriers to having that legislation go through smoothly. Julie, meantime, we're talking about impeachment yet again in Congress, even though we have eight more days of President Trump's tenure. Is this more of a damaging effect on Joe Biden's entry into the presidency than it is a help to the Democrats? Well, Lisa, I think that's a big question for Democrats right now. Certainly, Joe Biden has not thrown his weight behind the impeachment proceedings. He's pretty much just said, I'll let Congress do what they decide. However, Biden definitely wants to be able to hit the ground running. He wants to be able to have his cabinet members and especially his national security team confirmed right away. He wants to get to work on the vaccination program and also, again, on some of this uh, relief and stimulus bills. And he really doesn't want the whole Senate ground to a halt over an impeachment proceeding, especially one that is unlikely to even get all the, the votes necessary for a two-thirds conviction to bar Trump from future office. And, you know, some have said, does this also just divide the country further, just deepen grievances and undermine Biden's whole messaging around unity and healing? So I'm sure that's certainly on his mind, too, although his team is trying to spin it as more of an opportunity than a, um, than a deepening problem right now. But it's going to be an uphill battle for Biden regardless, and an impeachment is going to make it even trickier for him to navigate those waters. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been wondering, you know, what's the point at a certain point if it's not going to get through, if they're not going to actually uh, get Trump out of office? He only has eight days left. Why go through this exercise? And some people have argued, well, perhaps this has international ramifications in terms of edifying the United States' view as a, de a democracy that's united. Do you have any sympathy for that view? Well, there certainly is the sense of what this looks like to the rest of the world. Obviously, the images from last week, many saw as really uh, hurting the global image of the U.S. as a sort of you know, similar bastion of democracy. I think it's more important, though, for internal messaging and optics for most Democrats, the sense of saying to their own voters and to the country more broadly that this kind of behavior, this kind of incitement can't be a precedent, and essentially saying that this is, that they, the body would be without integrity if they didn't pursue impeachment proceedings because of this. However, again, the pragmatics and the practicalities around it do right. make this difficult. They know that they can't remove Trump from office and might be making things hard for Biden at the same time. One final question, and we can do this with Julie Norman. She is wonderful on the tensions of politics. Julie, this has been under our radar because of the news flow, and this is the foreign policy exit of the Trump administration on Cuba, and particularly overnight on Yemen. This was a heated report, a reported folks, heated exchange between legislative staff members and Mr. Pompeo in his State Department. Julie Norman, explain to our audience why these discussions on Yemen are so, so heated in Washington. So the discussions around Yemen and Yemen, a country in the Middle East, in the Gulf, that has really been suffering from a quite uh, severe civil war for, for years now. Pompeo is preparing to declare one of the groups, the, the Houthi group, a terrorist group. 
Labeling a, any group a terrorist group has very significant ramifications in terms of what kind of aid can go to the country, in terms of what kind of political conversations can happen with that group for peace processes and negotiations, and also just uh, puts the U.S. on a kind of very different political stance right. on that conflict that they've already been on. Do you assume um, really that, that terrorism doesn't Just because of time, Julie, to complete the circle, do you assume that President Biden and his team can reverse that decision if they choose? I, I do think they will try. Again, the team is pretty pragmatic. They're going to want to leave all options open for negotiations and diplomacy, and the terrorism label inhibits that rather than facilitates okay. that. That's why we love Julie Norman. I can take a, t a tangent like that, and there she is with expert views. Julie Norman uh, with UCL. Right now on the economics of the moment, it is always good to speak to Glenn Hubbard, Columbia Professor of Economics, a former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Bush. And I do want to parse here that with the late Edward Lazier were the giants of conservative growth, the certitude that growth was good and incentivizing our private economy was the way to get it uh, done. Glenn, I want you to speak for Ed Lazier. What a loss. But right now, Glenn Hubbard, there has to be an optimism about a return to American growth. We have a rising debt a rising deficit from a natu uh, natural disaster. Do you suggest that we can see American growth out of this terrible tragedy that we face? I think we can. I mean, obviously, there's uh, almost nothing good about COVID-19, but the pace of innovation we're seeing is truly amazing. And every business leader, I think, believes we're well in the interior of the productivity growth frontier. I think as long as policy focuses on recovery and renewal and reform, we're going to get there. And what was so distinctive here, Glenn Hubbard, with your work and also Ed Lazier's, as you said, caffeinated enthusiasm, there has to be an American initiative that is different. Is that exceptionalism still there? I think there is. You know, whether you're talking about public policy or private goals, the idea of a moonshot is important. If you look at the pace of development of vaccines for COVID-19, you see an example of what I'm talking about. And we can see that throughout the economy. And I think a task for our new president will be to try to make sure that that spirit is there, both publicly and privately. Glenn, how quickly can we return back to normal? There, there are many questions, even if people get vaccinated, how long you get protected for. So we, are we overthinking the, you know, that once people, 80% get vaccinated, we go back to normal economically? See, I'm not sure what normal will mean. We, we do need to think about this in phases. So we need to make sure we have a vigorous recovery, get people back to work, make sure we support people while things are locked down. But then the economy is going to look different. People may be in different jobs. If I were advising uh, President Biden, I would be focused on the possibility of something like a new GI Bill. What, what's a way to retrain people, get them going? I think that's the spirit we need. But Glenn, retraining into what? I mean, when I talk about normal, it's really thinking about Tom and I having a drink of our choice in a bar a, oh, together. Oh, okay. Well, I, I think you and Tom distancing. can have the drink of your choice. But I'm saying the mix of businesses and jobs in the economy last February is going to look different than what it may be in the new economy. And we want to make sure yeah. that people are ready for that. Drinks and all. Uh, how? 
how different, Glenn? So is it just what we were already going through, so much more e-commerce, uh, much more technology-driven being accelerated, or does COVID-19 put us on a, a, a different economy path? Well, I don't think we know yet, but I think the acceleration is a big deal. A lot of what happened during COVID was an acceleration of trends, like you mentioned, uh, with technology, e-commerce, and so on, and that's just going to go faster than people thought. So I think we need to make sure that we have a system for small and mid-sized businesses that they can adapt, that we have an ability to help train people for the jobs that will be instead of the jobs that were. Glenn Hubbard, when you talk about a GI Bill and the scope of that, I, I'm going to take a conservative guy like you and throw you on the same page with the great liberal economist, Claudia Sam. Claudia is calling for far more stimulus and I think I'm hearing that from you as well. But what is the distinction of the application of the stimulus between conservatives and liberals? Well, I'm actually not talking about stimulus, although I do think we need another recovery package. What I'm talking about is actually a longer term program. We needed something like what I'm talking about before COVID and we need it now. It's a way to help train people. I'm thinking of things like a block grant to okay, but Glenn, colleges. I don't mean to interrupt, but, but look, we're looking at the death of Reaganism right now, I would say, within the uproar in Washington and all that. How do you drag your Republican Party economists and politicians toward a Hubbard view of bigger view of bigger programs a la Dwight D. Eisenhower? Well, I think of going back to Adam Smith, to be honest, Tom, you know, Smith and other taught at Columbia, right? Yeah, I mean, Smith talked about mass flourishing. And if you want mass flourishing, you have to have everybody prepared to compete. So I view this as part of what a dynamic capitalist economy is. It's just we shouldn't kid ourselves. It will cost money. We need different budget priorities to pay for it. Glenn Hubbard with us, Columbia professor, and we're thrilled to come back. I've got about eight ways to go with Professor Hubbard here in these absolutely unique times. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.